Hello and welcome to COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. I am your moderator, Faith Rogers with DKB Med. Thank you for joining us. Time we are pleased to introduce our expert faculty member, Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Faith. Delighted to be here today with you all. Thank you. And these are Dr. Allwater's disclosures. This educational activity is supported by independent educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Eli Lilly and Company. Please note that this material presented is current as of today. That's June 9th of 2021. Um, please do consult NIH and IDSA guidelines for the most current guidelines. As for our learning objectives, today they are to appraise the efficacy, safety, and indications for treatments for patients with COVID that require hospitalization, evaluate management strategies for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19, explain mechanisms of action of monoclonal antibodies and other current and in-development treatments for COVID, and describe the best practices for managing patients with COVID with monoclonal antibodies and other agents. Um, with that, I would like to welcome Dr. Allwater to begin the presentation. Thank you so much again. Okay, thank you, Faith. And again, I uh, want to um, welcome everyone and uh, glad that you're joining today's webinar. So much in COVID-19, uh, we've been through quite a bit in the past 16 plus months. Uh, not only has there been great stresses on healthcare systems and our patients and families, uh, but uh, the approaches to this continue to evolve and I'll try to do my best to bring you up to date. Uh, I think many of us are familiar with COVID-19 and largely this viral infection is mild for many people, but about 20% uh, can develop a severe COVID-19. That's gonna be uh, uh, bad enough that uh, pneumonia or organ dysfunction, especially in the lung, lands someone in the hospital. Now, if uh, the younger you are, you're less likely to uh, fit these percentages, but even young people, there's a substantial portion of even 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds that can land in the hospital, especially if they have comorbidities. This is a fascinating virus that's really, I think, different than others in that there's an early typical viral-like illness, a lot like influenza, uh, early on, but then in a subset of people for which we don't quite yet fully understand uh, the reasons, some trigger a rather dramatic inflammatory response, which seems to drive much of the organ dysfunction as well as a potentially lung injury in ARDS, which uh, I, I think is amongst the most feared complications and one of the reasons uh, people stay in the hospital for extraordinary lengths of time or, or unfortunately succumb along with multi-organ uh, problems. Now, who's at risk? Um, you know, anyone, even healthy people can develop severe disease, but it's become clear that if you look at the left column, a number of uh, observational studies have really highlighted uh, these conditions um, uh, that appear to drive people more likely to get a higher percentage risk 
for developing severe COVID-19. And that includes obesity, uh, and that's really a BMI of 30 or more, along with diabetes, heart and lung disease, active cancers, and renal disease. Interestingly, areas which are a bit unclear and I think continue to cause confusion is down in the right-hand part of this slide with mixed evidence where you have hypertension listed. You might remember this was uh, often lumped in uh, early on, but I'd have to say hypertension alone probably is not uh, a strong uh, uh, risk factor for severe disease. Of course, in the middle is um, uh, probably less robust data, but uh, certainly I have concerns if patients have any of these conditions and develop um, uh, symptoms consistent with COVID-19. Now, these are all medical conditions, and I, I want to emphasize there's a really clear age gradient. The older you are, the uh, higher the risk for dying. Uh, people over 85 are especially at risk. Uh, but those really over 55 to 65 uh, pose a special risks. But then a certain demographics, including race and ethnicity, at least in the United States and, and really elsewhere uh, in other countries, there are certain groups that seem to be more prone. And, and it's, this is probably due uh, more to socioeconomic factors and underlying health conditions. Uh, but uh, it's, it's uh, also possible there are other factors. But what you can see here especially are that uh, Latinx or uh, uh, black uh, patients are at higher risk for hospitalization or death. And this also includes uh, smaller uh, groups such as uh, Native uh, Americans or Alaskans. Uh, so uh, I think these are people that we uh, also try to closely follow. Uh, and I honestly try to educate people with these healthcare problems to try to call and seek diagnosis early because that gives us a better chance for uh, mitigating severe illness. So this is a bit about therapeutics. And uh, the ambulatory patients are where you would hope to have interventions and we do have treatments for our outpatients, uh, but it's, it's limited at this stage. And we really don't yet have an oral antiviral like uh, uh, oseltamivir for influenza. Uh, but when patients are at home, if symptoms develop, there's, um, there's still uh, advice here that uh, we need to follow. So for people who have COVID-19, I think there's been some decrease in taking care not to infect others, uh, but isolation is still key for at least 10 days, unless if someone is immunosuppressed, in which case we extend that further uh, to 21 days. Uh, quarantine also, if you have a close contact, but uh, testing is an avenue to try to get out of jail, as it were, early. Uh, so if you do testing, um, you can actually shorten the time uh, in quarantine. Uh, but uh, as the numbers diminish, and I think we're trying to really limit, there may be a return to some contact tracing and, and trying to identify cases here. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are concerns about uh, variant viruses, and I think some people feel uh, they may not be at risk in many parts of the country, especially where immunization rates may not be that high. 
So this, I, I think, remains something that's very important and, and to try to help counsel your patients. But the only currently available therapies are investigational monoclonals that have uh, Food and Drug Administration approval under emergency use. Um, and But these have really made an impact. I'd like to sort of tell you that story and where we are with that. Now, you might remember the first one available was a single monoclonal called bamlanivimab. That's no longer used, and it's uh, been complexed with a second monoclonal called etisivimab. These two antibodies are uh, uh, targeting uh, aspects of the spike protein of the coronavirus. And this trial uh, published earlier in January uh, uh, suggested a marked reduction in patients that have those risk factors that we just reviewed. You can see nearly a 90% risk if they got the infusion for avoiding hospitalization or death. So. Uh, Again, probably you want to try to infuse this if you can uh, earlier in illness, ideally uh, less than three to four days if you can, uh, but uh, you can give these medications up to 10 days, but probably later on, you know, if you're at day five, six, seven, your body's own immune system's kicking in and there's probably less opportunity to try to stave off the virus triggering that uh, severe illness with those inflammatory responses. So this is given by IV infusion, and you do have to get it generally at certain centers. This is not universally available. You cannot uh, you know, call your druggist and, and uh, administer it. The, the second one that is also available is casarivimab and indivimab. This combination cocktail is the one that um, the president got back in October. Um, but uh, this trial here, again, is in the outpatient population, many of whom had risk factors uh, and, and also uh, was a heavily Hispanic uh, segment to the population here and uh, did reduce symptoms. Uh, and you can see here, again, a very potent risk reduction again uh, for hospitalization or death. And it included this lower 1200 milligram dose where you get 600 milligrams of each uh, monoclonal uh, infused uh, intravenously. So this lower dose is the one uh, just uh, earlier last week that the Food and Drug Administration authorized the lower dose instead of the higher dose. And the second thing which I found very interesting is that uh, they also have said that the doses could be given subcutaneously if not given IV. We've known for years when we try to treat people with hypogammaglobulinemia that we can give immunoglobulin subcutaneously. And of course, the IV infusion uh, is more cumbersome and can't be given in, in offices and so on as easily. So the sub-Q route is one that I bet will be increasingly adopted although for the moment it's only if you cannot give an IV infusion. Now there's a third monoclonal that uh, was just um, given authorization in May called Sotrovimab. Uh, this is just a single monoclonal uh, antibody. Uh, and this again was tested in a very similar way for patients who are outpatients with mild COVID-19 
uh, and uh, they got these in, uh, intravenous infusion. And you can see, again, very similar 85% risk reduction for either uh, needing to go to the hospital or dying. Um, so this particular uh, antibody uh, probably is not yet widely available, but since it was just authorized a couple weeks ago, uh, this also may be a, another one. Now, most centers are not giving people a choice of which to give uh, for the moment, but there are some other nuances that we'll talk about. But I think you get the sense that they all equally work well to try to keep uh, people out of the hospital and therefore protected. One of the stories which uh, I think is continuing to evolve would be the effect of uh, the variants of concern, uh, which we began hearing about last fall, but appear uh, uh, to have a particular impact on these monoclonal antibodies, in part because many of them are targeting different aspects of the spike protein from a genetic sequence that was isolated over a year ago, and of course the virus has evolved. What we've seen, and these are so-called pseudo-neutralization assays, that if you have a value of more than 1,000, it means from this in vitro assay that it's highly unlikely the antibody will work to protect patients. So um, uh, many weeks ago, this information came out against the alpha, beta, and gamma um, whereby bamlanivimab as a, a single monoclonal uh, really was uh, no longer distributed. Um, these uh, monoclonals are given free of charge through the federal government and HHS. So this was no longer distributed, but this was around the same time that the combination with etisivimab was authorized. Uh, you can see that uh, so far, casarivimab and divimab and citrovimab uh, uh, look to be very effective still against these variants in this sort of assay. The uh, bamlanivimab etisivimab, you can see, um, is losing some potency against especially the variants uh, that have been more problematic, such as beta and gamma. You know, these were first identified in South Africa and Brazil. So for that reason, currently HHS says that uh, you should not use that particular combination in states where more than 10% of cases uh, are due to beta or gamma isolates. Uh, the beta and gamma is a new designation by the WHO to try to get out of the numerical soup uh, designation. Now, who can get it for the moment? Remember, it's only outpatients uh, with mild to moderate disease. Uh, they can be 12 or older. And I've mentioned uh, within 10 days of illness onset, but uh, functionally, I'd say before day five to six is really what you want to target for and earlier the better. Uh, and they need to have uh, risk factors that we discussed for uh, severe COVID-19 uh, complications. And uh, the criteria here is evolved a little bit to expand uh, the list uh, in part, I think as numbers have come down and these monoclonals are more widely available, they're not so much now a scarce resource. There's been some liberalization, so the highest risk people no longer are the only ones eligible. You can see here it's been spread out a bit to others that um, uh, also have risks. And uh, I, I would encourage you to um, 
uh, toggle on the link, but most referral centers will have these forms and you can uh, just, you need to know how to do this within your own state. Um, so you can usually look this up on the state or local health department COVID-19 website to find referral centers. And it's relatively easy to do. And I, I very much encourage you uh, to consider that for your patients at high risk. And again, these are the only antiviral therapies we have for outpatients, but they are highly effective and they're reproducible. The trials all show this rather uh, significant 70 to 85% uh, reduction in the need for uh, a hospitalization or dying. And, uh, and I, I'm hoping that uh, people get diagnosed early because the early diagnosis and referral is uh, really where these shine. The, uh, these monoclonals uh, haven't worked as well in hospitalized patients, in part probably because patients are presenting later at day seven, eight, and nine for hospitalization during the hyperinflammatory phase. Uh, you won't have much impact for the monoclonals at that stage. So um, uh, many of the trials have been either halted, although some are ongoing in select patients. So we may hear more about this uh, down the line. Both the National Institutes of Health and the Infectious Disease Society of America have uh, uh, backed uh, using monoclonal antibodies um, uh, so I think that's important. Not everyone's incorporated the citrovimab data yet. Um, and I've already mentioned the caveat uh, about not using the one combination product, the bamlanivimab and etisivimab, in states or locations where you have a higher percentage of certain variants. Lastly, I'll mention uh, an area that I think for many of us that take care of immunosuppressed patients, uh, may have value. Uh, you know, these are patients that often worry, did they respond to a vaccine? Am I protected? And so on. And these monoclonal antibodies uh, have been uh, tested for prevention in certain settings, such as nursing homes or in household members who have been exposed. And uh, although bamlanivimab probably won't be used moving ahead, uh, these two studies show proof of concept that uh, these antibodies can work to help prevent illness. So here you have a subcutaneous in, uh, 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 injection that had an 80% prevention rate uh, through day nine. And you can imagine uh, people that at high risk who may have been exposed or who have ongoing exposure risks. This may be one avenue, especially in people that don't respond well to vaccines, such as people that get uh, are on rituximab and so on. The there are no other outpatient treatments currently authorized. And of course, there's been a whole host of medications such as hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin and so on, ivermectin, uh, who have all um, had their proponents, but really haven't yet had studies uh, backing use uh, to a large degree. I did want to mention uh, these two trials using inhaled budesonide, inhaled steroid, uh, uh, two trials that seem to suggest uh, treatment in outpatients uh, led to uh, less hospitalization or need for care along or a shorter uh, duration of illness. Um, uh, the reason I bring this up, of course, are in areas elsewhere uh, where there have been uh, uh, resource constraints, such as in India, um, 
Uh, this may uh, not yet be ready with a, a, a robust uh, uh, prospective phase three trial, but uh, given the difficulties of getting medical care, uh, there may be indeed um, uh, potential for this sort of uh, inhaled steroid to work, whether it quells inflammation. There's also some thought it may inhibit binding of the virus to cells. So um, I think this is something we'll stay tuned for. I'd like to just talk for, uh, about hospitalized patients. Uh, you know, this is where there was so much focus early on because of course these were people uh, who were presenting. Now, early in the pandemic, I would say people presented rather late and often uh, treatments had a harder time showing benefit. Um, but I think people are now coming into hospital earlier and we'll go over some of the, the treatments. And of course, the first one uh, that many people are familiar with that uh, was uh, given EUA approval and is the only one now fully approved uh, by the Food and Drug Administration for COVID-19 is remdesivir. This is a repurposed antiviral. It's actually a pro-drug originally developed for hepatitis C. It's been used in Ebola. That needs to be metabolized, but it works by inhibiting um, the RNA polymerase for making new subgenomic RNAs that can then uh, be translated into proteins to assemble new virus. So, uh, you know, certainly useful in concept. Uh, and the first trial that used it was a placebo-controlled trial, uh, ACT-1, that was sponsored by the NIH. And uh, this trial, I think, uh, it was uh, well done, had a primary endpoint, meaning time to recovery. And there was a five-day difference there that was statistically significant. I think uh, at times where hospital beds were full, this was very meaningful that you had a five-day difference, five days uh, recovery. Now. Um, this, you know, this was early in the pandemic. Uh, the trial was not uh, uh, large enough to show mortality benefit, although there was a trend. But yet uh, there was criticism that this drug doesn't save lives. And indeed, uh, the WHO solidarity trial, which we can talk about in the question and answer, if you wish, you know, uh, didn't have a mortality benefit. And I think people have some different opinions about remdesivir. But if you look at this ACT-1 trial, I think it clearly showed a benefit in terms of people that recovered faster uh, than if they didn't get the drug. And then importantly, if you actually look at who drove this improvement, it was the people that were receiving oxygen, not the people that didn't need oxygen or as you'll see in the ICU. So these were people that were probably on the hospital floor. They needed two or four liters of oxygen. So uh, the, this was, and also the largest group of people that seemed to sh suggest benefit and probably drove that primary outcome. Now, uh, patients that were started on remdesivir later in the ICU uh, had less benefit. And I think this is expected where probably uh, shutting down replicating virus is less important in this hyperinflammatory phase. Now, from a safety perspective, I think it's a fairly safe drug. In fact, in the trials, you could see people that got remdesivir actually had fewer adverse events than placebo, which probably means it's, it's uh, helping uh, treat the illness. And so both the NIH and the IDSA continue to endorse use of remdesivir in COVID-19 for people in the hospital because it is an IV drug, uh, and those who need oxygen. 
So not people that don't, or, um, and as NIH said, not for people that are already in the ICU or ECMO. Uh, now, the IDSA says you can use it in the ICU, but uh, I think there's less um, robust evidence there to suggest benefit. And I think probably most use it for patients earlier in their illness that are admitted uh, to hospital, but not yet in the ICU. Now, uh, I've already hinted at that we only have IV or sub-Q monoclonal antibodies for outpatients. What we're really missing are oral antivirals. There are two that are in trials now, one further along called molnupiravir. Uh, that's a twice daily drug that is inhibiting the same uh, RNA polymerase as the uh, uh, remdesivir. And phase two uh, trial information was presented back in March that showed that uh, the drug uh, really suppressed viral shedding uh, by day five of illness, as you can see here. Um, we're waiting for phase three uh, trial information to see if it's really improving clinical outcomes. Another drug, which continues to just go by uh, its name, AT527, works similarly and um, is thought to be even a little more potent, but is not yet as far along in its clinical trials. So uh, hopefully uh, these drugs will have clinical benefit and, and give people that are in the outpatient arena an additional option. Now, for hospitalized patients, uh, convalescent plasma was used uh, pretty liberally last year. Uh, the idea was to try to directly neutralize virus, hopefully, but maybe it also provided some immunomodulation um, and uh, was used very widely last summer and, and through the fall. Uh, but then some information came out uh, whereby the FDA revised its emergency use authorization such that units only um, with high titers against uh, the coronavirus uh, could be used. And, and this is important because many people that were donating, even after recovery from COVID, uh, really didn't have abundant antibodies in their um, uh, serum. Uh, you know, I, there are lots of trials about plasma and lots of opinions about it. Um, I would say this information that came from that expanded access program in the United States last summer uh, sort of helped clarify a bit where this could help. And uh, these were people that, um, a subset of the over 35,000 people at this point that got plasma, about 3,000 where they had tighter information. And what this uh, graph shows are that the high tighter people who got convalescent plasma before they were in the ICU appeared to benefit. So again, early treatment with higher amounts of antibodies that could bind the virus uh, may uh, indeed help um, uh, reduce uh, severe disease and death. Now, uh, this was a retrospective uh, aspect. There was no control arm, so those are uh, legitimate criticisms. Uh, but much like the monoclonal antibodies, to no surprise, if you used high titer convalescent plasma in outpatients, and this is a Tina use, uh, where you had to be 65 or older, so the groups that were really at high risk for uh, severe COVID-19 uh, did benefit uh, with reduction 
in um, uh, proceeding to severe COVID-19 if they got uh, convalescent plasma before uh, three days of symptoms had elapsed. So again, if you have patients in hospital that are in their early phase of illness, we can't use monoclonal antibodies, but convalescent plasma potentially could uh, help blunt uh, progression to severe illness. Now, looking at the totality of these convalescent plasma studies, these um, uh, plots are, are not terribly encouraging. You can see uh, there's wide variances. Many were uh, stopped early because uh, uh, there weren't enough patients to enroll. Uh, but uh, by and large, it's not an impressive story uh, for convalescent plasma, but I think a lot of this is because patients were getting plasma, like the recovery trial, the largest one, they got it at day nine, uh, you know, instead of day three, four, or five. So uh, again, it's probably not for every hospitalized patient, but there are those that I think benefit. And uh, uh, these kinds of trials, and this is just another plot, instead of looking at mortality, looking at uh, progression to mechanical ventilation, which, which shows a trend, but not, uh, again, um, statistically significant for benefit. So currently, I, I'd have to say the NIH and IDSA uh, are not endorsing use of convalescent plasma. However, uh, I think looking at the positive trials, my advice is if someone's early in illness and hospitalized, convalescent plasma may be useful. And the second is there are people that are quite immune suppressed and we've used a, quite a bit of it in the hospital for solid organ transplants, people who don't make good antibody responses to vaccines because they're on immunosuppressed drugs or have active malignancies. So, so this is where I think convalescent plasma may still have a role. Now the immunomodulate Tory agents are uh, important, especially for our more severely ill patients. And uh, much to the surprise of many, uh, a steroid, dexamethasone, uh, really uh, uh, helped patients who were uh, severely ill uh, in the ICU. And this is contrary to a lot of prior ARDS trials with steroids, but with this monomorphic illness with the virus, I think the coronavirus does trigger this very broad inflammatory response and uh, dexamethasone uh, led to a mortality benefit you can see here if you were ventilated from over 40% to 30%. And even if you're on oxygen, uh, but not in the ICU, you had a smaller benefit, but meaningful. Interestingly, if you didn't need oxygen, there was a trend towards worse outcomes. So uh, you really don't want to use dexamethasone until you're pretty certain your patients are heading into that hyperinflammatory phase. So uh, typically uh, oxygen requiring and with increasing oxygen requirements. So this was really the first drug to show mortality benefit. <clears throat> it was done in the United Kingdom, which had much uh, higher rates of mortality than in the United States, but really has been adopted as a standard of care by by many in the United States for hospitalized patients. Now, there is a story about tocilizumab. This is a monoclonal antibody that inhibits an interleukin-6 uh, receptor. And uh, you may remember back, oh, February of 2020, the Chinese guidelines for COVID said this is a possible treatment. 
And it was, I think, picked up uh, because of this cytokine-like release syndrome, uh, where this drug is actually approved by the FDA uh, in oncology for so-called CAR T-cell therapy that stimulates a cytokine release syndrome. So early on, uh, many centers used this. We used it at Johns Hopkins. Um, uh, on the premise that it might help mitigate uh, that uh, severe inflammatory response and, and get people out of the ICU and off the ventilator. However, uh, this graph uh, set, uh, this table, I should say, uh, shows trials, uh, the first of four of which uh, used it as monotherapy, and they were all negative trials, and, and the drug fell out of favor. But then last, last fall, the, the impacted trial, the last one on the right, was a positive trial that suggested um, that people were less inclined to be uh, in the ICU on a ventilator or die uh, if they got tocilizumab. And this was a, a larger trial, multinational, uh, with many people of color. So this was interesting, and uh, it wasn't exactly clear why this trial was different until you got to another trial uh, called the remap cap that used tocilizumab largely versus placebo. And much like the IMPACTA trial, at this point, the recovery trial that documented the use of dexamethasone showed that most people were on it and they got tocilizumab to boot in this trial. And that was true in that IMPACTA trial. So pe largely people got tocilizumab and dexamethasone. And what that showed is a, a really impressive 10-day improvement in the need for organ support, uh, whether it was ventilation, uh, renal uh, support, or so on. And there was a mortality difference, uh, nearly 36% down to 28%. So these two studies started to turn this tide, but then uh, the larger recovery trial also incorporated tocilizumab. And again, over 80% were on dexamethasone. And what they found was that there was a mortality benefit, decreased need to go to the ICU and be ventilated, and an earlier discharge. So again, these three trials, I think, uh, convinced people that, <clears throat> especially with the waiting of the recovery trial, uh, that there's benefit. And uh, this uh, meta-analysis, if you look at the line where were you on steroids, yes, you can see it clearly shifted to the left, favoring tocilizumab, whereas if you didn't get it, um, uh, it didn't. So it looks like the combination was clearly uh, uh, important. And if you look at all the studies, include the negative studies along with the recovery and so on, you can see that it still favors tocilizumab, most of that being driven by the larger studies that also had people on, uh, mostly on dexamethasone. So um, the other drug, which has not been widely used, but baricitinib is a JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor, inhibits um, broadly inflammasomes, uh, so a lot of inflammatory molecules uh, that stimulate uh, aspects of the immune system. And there have been two trials. The second one, called ACT2, uh, um, showed about a one-day improvement. So it really didn't generate a lot of excitement. Um, people were better uh, in seven days instead of eight days if they got baricitinib. 
But a more recent trial called the Cove Barrier Trial was a larger study where many people also were on steroids, about 80%, uh, again, because the standard of care changed. And uh, they were randomized to uh, uh, baricitinib or not. And there you can see there was a mortality benefit, although the primary endpoint, which was uh, death or progression to uh, increasing oxygenation, was not significant. So uh, with this information in hand, I think the NIH said, look, if you have someone on dexamethasone and redesivir, but they're getting worse, they're needing more oxygen, looks like they're heading to the ICU, you may want to use tocilizumab or baricitinib to see if you can sort of turn them around and avoid that uh, terrible ICU illness or death. Um, uh, IDSA has something similar uh, about tocilizumab, but they haven't yet updated uh, to include baricitinib if they do. Um, I think I think we're at Hopkins sticking with tocilizumab. The baricitinib trial, uh, although um, uh, I guess uh, persuaded the NIH, um, we were a little less impressed with that trial and thought the three trials of tocilizumab uh, uh, favored uh, use. The last immunomodulator, and again, uh, these are uh, this is not yet received emergency use authorization, but you may hear about it, is uh, a monoclonal antibody that inhibits granulocyte macrophage uh, uh, stimulating factor called the live air trial. And uh, in full disclosure, I was on the data safety monitoring board for this trial. But uh, this trial uh, was interesting in that um, if you looked at the modified intention to treat, uh, there was um, benefit in terms of uh, those who received the drug uh, were less likely to need mechanical ventilation. That's the bars uh, on the left. Uh, but uh, for the uh, groups that um, uh, were uh, not quite so super inflamed and not the advanced elderly, there is even a greater benefit. Um, uh, probably people that got the drug earlier in illness rather than later illness and uh, had a survival benefit of 92% all the way over on the right, 92%. So this is something that I think the FDA will see uh, there are obviously no head-to-head -head comparisons of tocilizumab, this drug, or baricitinib. Uh, so it, it's a bit unclear how you would choose one over the other. Um, and uh, perhaps there'll be future trials trying to help study this. So we've covered a lot of ground of both uh, outpatient and inpatient therapies. Uh, I'm hoping the take-home message for uh, you um, are that the monoclonal antibodies, I think, are one of the most effective available for patients that really uh, are at risk for bad outcomes. And that if you can get them in diagnosed and in early, they're highly effective. We do have remdesivir, which is FDA approved uh, for uh, all patients, but the greatest benefit from the ACT-1 trial were people on oxygen, but not yet in the ICU. And it did shorten the duration of illness by five days. And I think the idea here is um, that uh, a shorter illness certainly is worthwhile for a drug that appears to be uh, well tolerated. Uh, and lastly, dexamethasone is the one that's lowered mortality benefits. And I think we'll still have evolving data on the other immunomodulators, um, which aren't quite as well established yet, but 
uh, more uh, information and trials will be forthcoming as well. So um, I hope that was helpful and uh, it's back to Faith. Um, as a reminder, we're gonna move into the Q&A now. So our first question today, Dr. Allwater is, are people with HIV at higher risk for COVID-19? So I, I think it depends. Uh, people that are just HIV positive but are on antiretrovirals with controlled virus probably are not at increased risk. Uh, patients who are untreated have advanced AIDS, um, who often have additional health problems probably are. So there's mixed evidence uh, about that. It's not one of the ones that were in that left column uh, um, there. And it, I think it, it depends on the stage of illness. Okay, fantastic. Our next learner asks, is there any rationale for use of high-dose dexamethasone with a prolonged taper in patients with severe disease with a hyperinflammatory phase? I think it's a, that's an a interesting question. Uh, you know, certainly uh, the dexamethasone um, is used uh, at six milligrams that was selected uh, by Peter Horby and his group at uh, the recovery trial. And people are pretty stuck with that. <clears throat> Although other uh, steroid trials against COVID have also been uh, positive with use of hydrocortisone or methylprednisolone. Uh, you know, the prolonged taper I think is tricky. Uh, here's why, um, because there is a risk for secondary infections. And you have to wonder if the hyperinflammatory phase is that versus infection. The the other aspect I think is also difficult. Uh, we've had some patients, you know, three to four weeks into illness that seem to have this rebound, this uh, sort of rebound hyperinflation, uh, hyperinflammation, that we've uh, sort of returned to steroid use when we felt uh, pretty sure we've ruled out secondary infections. So uh, I think there may be uh, uh, times where that's the right decision, uh, but it, it requires pretty careful um, analysis. And of course, there's really no data to back that up. Okay, great, thank you. Um, the next question is, some infectious disease specialists uses the thermosin to help those with high symptom burden, but not on oxygen. Is there any, data to support this use as they say it acts as anti-inflammatory in this way? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, most of the azithromycin trials as an independent <clears throat> agent were done early on and were negative trials. Uh, you know, it, it, the macrolide antibiotic can be an immunomodulator. Uh, I, uh, I would not advocate its use for that. I, I think there are other drugs that uh, have better activities. Um, and so I would stick with some of the ones which um, uh, we talked about today. Very good. Um, which agents should we use, baricitinib or tocilizumab? Ah, <laughs> yeah, um, I think this is uh, personal preference. Um, there's more data for tocilizumab. I, I think you really have to look at these trials and uh, make your own judgments. Uh, the, the NIH guidance is really uh, or. 
Uh, we have no head-to-head -head trials. Uh, if someone is not tolerating or can't receive dexamethasone, baricitinib is probably uh, an option there only because that we do have trial information regarding that. Um, uh, personally, um, I've sort of been sticking with tocilizumab, although I find that lenzilumab, um, the anti-GMCSF antibody, also intriguing. Uh, it's, it'll be interesting, and I think since they all have effects to differing degrees, there may be at some point head-to-head -head trials, but it could also boil down to cost and convenience as well. Uh, the baricitinib is an oral drug. Okay. Um, thank you to everybody with these questions. We're getting so many, and I wanted to point out that if we do not get to yours today, um, we do have a weekly series where we have Dr. Allwater on, and he does answer questions at the conclusion of each of those. Um, so stay tuned, and you may just see your question in another episode here. So uh, the next question is, is asthma a chronic lung condition considered high risk for receiving monoclonal antibody? You know, I'd have to double check the uh, fact sheet. Um, asthma really has mixed evidence currently for COVID-19. Um, I know uh, the FDA liberalized uh, the number of indications for uh, monoclonal antibody. So um, I, I'd either have to get back to you or just simply check the, uh, the fact sheets um, <clears throat> for any of the monoclonals to see if asthma is listed there. Great, thank you. And also, um, one more reminder to our learners in the uh, console on ON24, you should have access to the fact sheets on some of these monoclonal antibodies. So hopefully that can answer that question for you. Um, the next question is, what are the side effects of GCSF inhibition? Well, um, you know, the, the, the GCSF is interesting because you're, you're um, using a drug that's higher up in the uh, and inhibiting more uh, of the inflammation than you would, for example, uh, with tocilizumab. Um, so maybe that's one reason it, it had uh, perhaps a greater relative impact. Uh, the trials really uh, were, were safe. And, um, you know, at least through the 28 days, there appeared to be no increased risk of um, unusual side effects, including infections or clots. And it's really interesting that this is also held up with tocilizumab and baricitinib, that these immunomodulators didn't seem to pose extra risk to patients uh, in terms of super infections. Although, please don't forget that uh, the coronavirus itself, uh, the rate of secondary infections with bacteria and fungal uh, disease is rather significant regardless. Okay, um, this question is, what is the Delta variant? So the Delta, so the WHO is trying to name uh, these variants of concern, Alpha, uh, was the one that was first described in the UK. That's known as B117. Uh, the Delta variant was the one first described in India. Uh, so there's uh, Kappa and Delta, uh, two subtypes of 617. And so these look like they're more transmissible. Uh, they may also be more uh, cause greater severity of illness. Uh, so the Delta variant is the one that you may have been hearing about earlier. 
And there's a number of viral naming conventions, and I think they're they're trying to go for something that's easier for people to get their heads around. Okay, thank you for that. Um, Dr. Allwater, what is the ideal time to initiate remdesivir treatment? Well, I, I think here it's um, not exactly uh, clear <clears throat> um, for the, an ideal time. Uh, the FDA has approved it for any hospitalized patient. There could be someone not on oxygen who's severely immunosuppressed that it may be appropriate to start it on just because they uh, may not have a good immune system. On the other hand, um, you know, the studies would suggest that if someone's admitted and uh, looks like they need oxygen, that would be the time you'd want to start. So uh, earlier is always better for um, antivirals. The reason not everyone that um, should get it, for example, uh, even if they don't have oxygen needs, uh, could be that so many people just get better on their own. So you'd really, the trials would have to probably treat uh, many, many people uh, to show benefit for that group. And we just don't have that at this time. Okay, and I think um, we'll wrap up here with this question. Is there any value to antibody testing after vaccination? So a patient was negative for antibodies per an approved test two months after the second vaccine dose. Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's an excellent question. I think on many of our minds, um, you know, patients would like to know, do they have a meaningful response? And part of the issue is the um, antibody tests for spike proteins are not broadly standardized, so it's hard to compare or understand. Um, obviously, if someone is absent anti-spike antibodies and make sure you're getting the anti-spike test not the anti-nucleoprotein test which is a very uh, another very common antibody test for uh, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, <clears throat> if they're negative uh, you know even weeks after your second immunization that that would probably be disheartening we don't yet know if you don't have some protection from that I think people are uh, trying to understand if uh, additional boosters are uh, worthwhile should they get a different type of vaccine. Um, so it, it's unknown. Uh, uh, personally, I think uh, for certain patients, if they'd like to know, um, I've been ordering the test uh, because if they don't have a detectable antibody response, I tell them they should continue to be cautious if we still have high community rates of COVID-19. Great, and thank you again for answering all of those uh, very, very good um, salient questions from our audience. Um, so just a reminder to anybody watching still, if you'd like to claim credit, please click on the claim credit button. It'll appear when the webcast ends and be on the lookout for our 30 day survey. You will receive that through email. Um, as always, your responses will help us develop further education. Um, and we thank you for joining us. Have a great day. Dr. Allwater, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, and thank you so much for joining, and I uh, hope I all... Uh...